0: You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. Today, I want to talk to you about the word glory, the word glory. Um, Sometimes we read the Bible, we sing, we even say words together, or like in, in our normal everyday talk that we do not understand the meaning of, of that. Um, there's a slide that we're going to put up. I remember seeing this whenever I got on Facebook like 12 years ago. Uh, and I thought it was really funny. I laughed a lot. Um, it says, your great aunt just passed away, LOL. Why is that funny? It's not funny, David. What do you mean? Mom, LOL means laughing out loud. Oh my goodness, I send that to everyone. I thought it meant lots of love. So it was like, condolences, lots of love, right? Um, so they're using the exact same thing, like LOL. It, it means it's the exact same uh, acronym for each person, but they mean two entirely different things, right? Um, sometimes we can do that with scripture. We can think that a word means something, but ultimately it's trying to communicate something totally, diff- totally different than that. So the word that we're going to focus on is glory, and I believe that the passage that we're looking at today tells a tale of two glories, two different, completely different types of glories. All right, so we are in John chapter 5, continuing our study through John. Last week, Pastor Daniel talked about how Jesus made this bold claim that he and the Father are one. He's, he counted himself to be equal with God and he said that God is his his father. Now, this was after the Pharisees said that he broke the Sabbath by healing a paralyzed man, telling him to take up his bed and walk. So, this is a super offensive thing that Jesus did. (laughs) Both of those things. Uh, Really, the latter. The latter, the, the, the part about saying that he was God, is what he went to the cross for. That's why they crucified him. That's why Jesus was killed. That's why he went before the trial and all everything. It was because of that. So this was super offensive, what Jesus did. But Jesus kind of replies after, after he's been, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he tells them uh, that he is equal with God. Um, he begins to talk about this word glory, and it's the Greek word doxa. Everybody say that with me, doxa. Doxa. Okay. The Greek word doxa is used 356 times throughout the Bible and 19, 19 times in the book of John. Um, there's a catechism of, it's called the Westminster Catechism. This is like, I actually don't know like any catechisms at all because we're Baptists and don't really do catechisms but a lot of other churches do. Um, but the Westminster Catechism is like the most famous catechism of them all. Um, and it's, it says, what is the chief end of man? And so the, the answer to that question that you're supposed to memorize is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I've known that. I've, uh, I've like, I remember, because that, that question is, why does man exist? So glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I, I was like, that's a really good short answer. I like that. But whenever I started thinking about it, I was like, I don't know if I understand that word glorify. What does it mean to glorify God if that's, if that's the purpose of, if, of humans, that's why we're here, then it's pretty crucial, right, to understand what that means. So what does it mean? How does Jesus talk about this? The first passage we're going to look at is in John 5, chapter, or it's verses 40 through 44. Verse 40 says, And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. I receive not honor, or doxa, from men. But I know you, that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in, my own, or in his own name, him you would receive. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another? And seek not the honor, or doxa, that cometh from God only. So doxa is used three times in just this small section. And it's that word honor. It's glory. It's translated honor here in the KJV and a lot of other versions. It's translated glory, but it's the word doxa. And Jesus says that the Pharisees cared about the doxa that came from men and not the doxa that came from God. Jesus says that the Pharisees think they have life, but they will not come to Jesus in order to receive life. Jesus, on the other hand, will not receive the doxa from men. Jesus says that he knows them and that they they do not have the love of God in them, and that um, he comes in the Father's name and they don't receive him. So he wraps all of this saying, all of this up, all of this condemnation of the Pharisees. You, you don't believe in God. You say you do, but you don't if you did, you would receive me, but instead you would receive just any old guy who said he was uh, like receiving the glory of men. But I, re- I have the glory of God, and you're not receiving me. And he sums it all up, and he says, um, how can you believe who received doxa, glory, from one another, and seek not the doxa, glory, which comes only from God? So we're left with Jesus telling the Pharisees that this doxa is very important but it's not just any doxa, but a specific doxa, glory, that truly belongs, or that truly brings life. The doxa that comes from man is useless, and Jesus doesn't care for it. Now, with this backdrop, we're going to enter into the story of the feeding of the 5,000, which is one that you've probably heard, right? Um, The feeding of the 5,000 is a pretty famous story, so famous, in fact, that even though this, the Gospels, so there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic, which means that they are the same pretty much. They, they differ a little bit, but there's a lot of overlap. They tell a lot of the same stories. John, on the other hand, includes stories like the wedding of Cana that we talked about that is not in any of the other Gospels. But it includes these specific stories in order to tell, to reveal a specific set of truths about who Jesus is and the revealing of his glory. And that's what he's doing in John. However, he includes this story of the feeding of the 5,000, which is included in every gospel. So this is a very important story. However, John is using it for a specific purpose. And it's not to say, if you bring Jesus your lunch, he can make a whole lot of stuff happen. Like, if you, if you just bring Jesus your little bit, he'll, make a, he'll do a lot. That, while that is true, if you trust Jesus, he can do a lot of things with your life. That is a true statement. That is not the point of this story. The point of this story in John is, has a specific intention, and we're going to read that and try to discover what that is. Remember the backdrop of chapter 5, the glory that Jesus is talking about. So look at chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on, the, on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into, the, into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a, pe- a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred pennyworth of bread is not sufficient for them that everyone might be able to take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, There is a lad over here which have uh, five bar- barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. And now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number of about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples. And the disciples to them who were sat down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled up, he said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore, they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of truth, that prophet that should come into the world. Then Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by, by force to make him king. He departed again into a mountain himself alone. I don't know if this, is, this strikes you as amazing, but I, I think it's amazing whenever um, I go over to somebody's house and they have enough food to, to be able to feed me and, because I eat a lot. And like if a, m- my brother and I, Um, We we would often hang out at the same places, so we'd go over, and typically we would end up going out somewhere like after we ate because we would not be completely full. But this story says that Jesus took the five barley loaves, distributes them to five thousand men, probably fifteen thousand people, and then collects the leftovers, and there are twelve baskets we can do the math there and i think there was a little bit more than 5 barley loaves. Jesus multiplies this meal like by a thousand or something like that, right? It he gives thanks, he breaks the bread and then he breaks the bread and then he breaks the bread and he just keeps going and going and it seemingly never runs out. And the disciples distribute it and then they collect 12 baskets full of leftovers. So everybody's full. Now, that is incredible. And this is the sign that Jesus gives. However, the purpose of this passage is it's to show Jesus' divinity, yes, he has power um, to produce food, right? And to to do this miraculous sign, but the the purpose of the story is the sign and the response and for that to affect us. So what is the sign? What is the response? So the sign, we have this incredible miracle of feeding 15,000 people with uh, a little boy's lunch, right? probably what could not have fed me alone. And Jesus makes this feed 15,000 people. This is incredible. But the thing that we want to focus in on here is the response of the crowd, because that's what John's intent is. He gives us the backdrop of some people, the Pharisees. They cared about the, the, the doxa, the glory that comes from men. But Jesus had the glory which came from God. Now after this story takes place, we see there at the end, um, verse 15, or I'm sorry, verse 14, then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is a truth, that prophet which should come into the world. So this is one of those super obvious references that everybody gets, Right? No, it's not. Um, so this is, this is where I, I have permission to tell this story, kind of. So I'm dating Cherish. Cherish is here this morning. Um, Cherish does not get pop ro- culture references. Um, you know how sometimes you're like, you, you might reference a game that took place last week or you reference something that happened at the Super Bowl or some, some big cultural event uh, that took place. Uh, sometimes I do that with Cherish, and I just forget every time, like, she's not going to get it. And she reminds me, whenever I say it, she says, I, I don't understand, like, I, I never watched that show, I never saw that movie, or whatever, right? But in order to get the joke, in order to get the reference, you have to have seen the, the news article, you had to have seen the movie, you had to have heard that song, right? John is assuming that you, as the reader, have read the Old Testament pretty thoroughly, You understand it pretty well, and he just makes a a little reference, right? So whenever he does this, he's kind of winking at you, the reader, and saying, oh, remember what it says way back when? And we, today, in the 21st century, are like, nope, don't remember that, (laughs) right? Um, So what is he getting at? What is he talking about? It's in Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12. So remember in our passage, it says, after they've seen this incredible miracle, says that um, the people said, "This is of truth, the prophet that should come into the world." So, who's the prophet that should come into the world? what, is, what are they talking about there? Well, there was a prophet, right? Um, in In the first five books of the or the first five, the, four of those books are like totally centered on this guy's story. His name was Moses, right? tells, we we are given so much information about this person, Moses, um, because he did some incredible stuff through the power of God. He was like this vessel of of God's glory being manifested here on earth. Um, So Moses is used by God to deliver the people of Israel, these people that have been set apart uh, by God, to be a people reserved for himself. They're in Israel, or they are in Egypt, And they are slaves. Israel is delivered by Moses. Moses comes and he says, Let my people go. You know the story. Um, He gets them out of Egypt and they they escape Pharaoh's army by going through the middle of the Red Sea, like parting water. And they they walk through on dry land. They make it through to the other side. And then uh, God gives them these tablets of stone. God gives Moses these tablets of stone. After meeting with him, Uh, in person, on a mountain, right? So Moses has this, like, personal relationship with God. And then they're out in the wilderness, and they've failed to trust God. And they they said, no, there's no way that we can do, like, the things that God has said that we can do. And then they're like, they start complaining. And they're like, we're so hungry. We wish we were back in Egypt. I wish Moses had never even came for us. And Moses says, God, what are you going to do with these rebellious people? And he says, they need food. And God gives them bread every single morning. They just go out and they collect bread from the ground. Manna is what it's called. And it's like this sweet bread, right? I don't know, like a sweet wafer or something. I'm not sure what it would be. But it was just provided for them. God provided for them in the middle of nowhere, in the wilderness, bread. All right? So Moses is the figure who does all of these things. And this is at the end of Moses' life. He's elaborating on... You know, God met face to face with him, gave him these laws, and he said, This is exactly what I want you to do. This is how you need to live. Um, and at the very end, Moses dies. Moses crawls up a mountain. Crawls, maybe. I don't know. He's, he's an old guy. I, he might have crawled. But he climbs up a mountain after giving this speech to Israel, and he dies. And what it says right after that, in Deuteronomy 34 10 through 12, it says, And there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, in all the signs and the wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land, and in the mighty hand and in the great terror which Moses showed in the sight of all of Israel. Moses did all these incredible things. He He knew God face to face, he was this person that, like, people look to him, like, kind of how, like, we look at Pastor Daniel and we're like, man, he just knows God so well, and he's like our spiritual leader, right? But a little bit further than that extent. They looked to Moses, and they said, this guy is the vessel of God's power, and he was incredible, and whenever he died, it said there, didn't, there was not another prophet who arose that was like Moses. And what that creates is this void, right? Moses left a void, and what they were hoping for is the promise of God to be made that, in Genesis 3, 15, that there was going to be this person who raises up, who is raised up to lead the people and who would um, crush the head of the serpent, would do away with evil. And then in this, we, we know that he's going to be a prophet. He's someone who, is, who knows God face-to-face, knows him personally. Now, what we have with Jesus, going back to the New Testament, right? What we have with Jesus is someone breaking bread and just giving people tons of bread From where there was like it's a miracle that all this bread is being given out. So automatically, these Israelites who are who know the Old Testament so well, what are they thinking? It's a prophet who arose who's just like Moses. Like he is providing bread for us in this miraculous way. This is the new Moses. This is the prophet that we've been waiting for. So this is what they say: they say, he this is the prophet that we've been waiting for in verse 14. This is of truth, that prophet, that should come into the world. So, in the steps of Jesus, in steps Jesus, over a thousand years later, miraculously giving everyone bread, he's healing people, he's teaching people the message of the kingdom that comes directly from God. He's so close to God, he says, God is his father. And they're like, this is the prophet, this is him. So, to me, and to the disciples, and to everybody in that time, the logical conclusion of this is, this is the Messiah. Like, so what, what do we need to do? We need to crown him king. Because it says that the Messiah is going to be king, and he's going to deliver us from those foreign powers, and he's going to set up God's kingdom here on earth. And they are so looking forward to this. They're so stoked. Like, this is the guy. They're going to make him king. He's going to rule. Because their idea of the Messiah was someone who was an earthly ruler. So, Let's see if Jesus was on board with this plan that the disciples had. This is the response of Jesus in verse 15. When Jesus, therefore, perceived or discovered or knew that they were going to come and take him by force to make, them, to make him a king, he departed again into the mountain himself alone. So the second that he, he, like, he hears them saying like something, you know, oh, this guy's the prophet. This is the one. This is the Messiah who's going to come. And he's like, they're going to try and make me king. All right. And he just leaves. He just goes up a mountain. Like, I, I, I'm not about this. Now, why is this? This doesn't make any sense, right? If Jesus were looking for an opportunity to be able to change a group of people, you would think it would be like, oh, 15,000 people. This is a pretty good start to changing the world, right? But what does he do? He goes up a mountain. Why does he do this? It's because of this backdrop of glory that we just read about that he does not care about the glory that comes from men, but rather the glory that comes from God. Jesus doesn't take the bait. Jesus cares about the glory that comes from God. The glory that comes from men is completely worthless to him. He didn't come to the earth so that then he could be, like, Jesus, the rock star that everybody loves and has millions of followers and he's so cool and, like, people are just like, oh, Jesus is the coolest guy ever. Look at him giving us bread all the time. This is awesome. No, he came specifically for the glory of God, to show people the glory of God. He was the glory of God revealed. This whole story helps us understand the word glory what glory Jesus cared about, and the glory that God has given us. For Pharisees, it was a glory given by man, but Jesus said it was worthless. The glory that Jesus is talking about is a glory that seeks no praise from men, but only from God. This is doing the right thing for the right reason. Jesus shows us this by feeding the hungry, healing the broken, casting out evil spirits, In all of these different signs that we are reading about week by week. He doesn't do them just so that he's like, look at me guys, I'm awesome. But rather, he does them to bring glory to God. This is the Boy Scout dilemma. Um, Most of you guys are probably familiar with the Boy Scouts. Was anyone here a part of Boy Scouts? Okay, yeah, got a couple. So I was never a part of Boy Scouts, but... Because I've watched TV, I am familiar with like, the most familiar badge, or the, the most, I don't know, I feel like it's like the well, most well-known badge, maybe, that exists, and that's the help the little old lady across the street badge. That's probably not what it's called. I don't know what it would really be called, <laughs> or if it exists, but that's on TV shows. <laughs> but the question is, does the little boy help the old lady across the street to earn a badge, or does the little boy help the old lady across the street? Because it's the right thing to do. Because it's going to help an old lady. Right? Is it, are we doing good to be recognized by other people? Or are we doing good because it's good? This is the conundrum that we are constantly in, in life. And the Bible tells us this story of us, of humans, that every time we are given the opportunity to do the right thing for the right reasons, we mess it up. We... Not that we don't have these moments of like really good things that we do, but that for the most part, our lives are characterized by doing the right thing for the wrong reasons or doing the wrong thing altogether. We, we do the right thing, but only because it's going to lead to gain for us. People will trust us and then we can gain their trust and then we will be, we'll gain power at our job. We'll gain power at the school. We'll gain power wherever we are, right? We, we do the right thing for the wrong reasons. The only way that that's fixed in the Bible is by Jesus. That's the only way. But this is glory that is invested in us whenever we, we have power, whenever we have the power to, to make decisions and this responsibility over people. This, this is the Bible's term for glory. Now, you say you just made up that definition for glory. It has absolutely nothing to do with ruling. I'm going to prove it to you, all right? Psalm 8, if you look at Psalm 8, right in the middle of your Bible, look at Psalm 8. So glory is power and responsibility to rule, and the way that we know this is by this passage. It says, "O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is Thy name in all the earth! Who has set Thy glory above the heavens? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings Thou hast ordained strength. Because of Thine enemies, that Thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider Thy heavens and the work of Thy fingers, the moon and stars which Thou hast ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that Thou visitest him? For Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels." and has crowned him with glory and honor. Thou hast made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Apparently, this is saying that God's glory exists in the heavens, but he has made us a little lower than the angels. He has invested us with glory. It says that he has crowned us with glory and honor. And then immediately after, it says, he made us to have a dominion over the works of his hands. And then it lists those things out, right? All the things that he made. And it's getting back to what Genesis was about, right? And that's that humans were created to be stewards of God's good earth, to display the glory of God, to work for the glory of God, to bring flourishing to his good world, right? That's what we were created for, and that is what the glory of God looks like. It's whenever we bring flourishing to the world for the sake of God, because he has invested us with that power. So, it looks way different than fame. It looks way different than success. It looks way, way different than having a lot of followers or writing a lot of books or being highly educated. Sometimes we think success is glory. But the Bible's view of success is that you exist. The the Bible's view of glory is that you exist. Because you exist, because you are breathing, because you are a human, you have been crowned with the glory of God. Because you are breathing, you have worth and you have dignity. And it doesn't matter what you've done, that is your state of being. Now, you can can do your best to fight against that and to do things that do not bring glory to God, but it doesn't change the fact that because you're breathing, you are an image bearer. You are someone who displays the glory of God. Now, the fullness of glory is fully displayed later on in John. In John chapter 12, Jesus says this as he's going to the cross. The hour has come that the Son of Man, which is the most often way that Jesus refers to himself, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my, ser- my father honor. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause I came unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The fullness of glory is not how we define success. It's not based on the things of this earth. Apparently, the fullness of glory is self-sacrifice. Because what was Jesus doing whenever he came to the cross? Whenever he said those words, whenever Jesus said, I have glorified him, and I will glorify you again. Right? What, What is about to happen? He is about to display a beautiful, selfless love. Apparently, glory looks less like the our terms of success, and it looks more like a 30s, somewhere in his 30s, Jewish man hanging on a criminal's cross, being wrongfully convic- convicted of crimes, being beaten, being bruised, being whipped, being stabbed. This is glory. This is how the Bible shows us the fullness of the glory of God. It's this man hanging on a cross between two criminals the glory of God is revealed to us through that selfless act of love because he has been given all power on earth and in heaven. He's invested with all of that glory, right? And instead of using it to make a name for himself and instead of using it to become a king, to be crowned with the glory of men like the people wanted to give him after he fed the 5,000, right? Instead of all of this, He goes to a criminal's cross and dies for the sake of every single human being in a selfless act of love. This is the glory of God. This is what we were created for. We were created to bear this glory. And what Jesus did is he rebooted the human project, right? God Creates these humans, plants them in the garden to be the garden keepers, to be the people who bring flourishing to this planet. He hasn't been like, well, you're on your own, you you can do it. He he gives them this beautiful place and he shows them this good world and he says, all you have to do is not eat from this tree. And then they they decide to define good and evil for themselves. They give the middle finger to God and they say, nope, we're going to do this on our own. We, we know exactly what we need to do. We're going to define good and evil for ourselves. And we're just going to do our own thing. And that's what humans do. And they rebel. And God seeks us out and reboots the human problem. Just like how many of you have ever had a cell phone that started running way slower later on than whenever you first got it? Have you ever had that? Yeah. Um, I have had like a, a phone or even a, like an older laptop that didn't have as much storage put all this junk on it, just filled it and filled it with photos and videos and songs and all of this, and by the time you fill that thing to capacity, right, it's like barely running. It's like not able to do very much, and what you have to do, what I, or what I used to do, now I just buy a phone that actually has that storage and pay the extra 30 bucks or whatever it is, but at one point, I would hook it up to the computer, transfer everything off of it, and then like restart it, and you would reboot it so that then it works like it did at the beginning, hopefully, right? Because it, get, it gets bogged down and doesn't work as well. Jesus comes to reboot humanity, to restart humanity, because a long, long, long time ago, we were created with the glory of God invested in us in order to rule this world the way that God intended us for us to Intended for us to rule, to bring glory to His name, to bring flourishing to the people around us. And somewhere along the line, we started bringing death to those around us. We started seeing how can we advantage ourselves over someone else and dis- disadvantage them. How can we tell a lie about our coworker so that then we can um, gain advantages at work, right? Or make them look bad. Or like, hey, this person just did this and yeah they're they're not a very trusty person you can trust me though how how did we somehow along line uh, somehow along the lines of history begin to do this i don't know the bible tells us that we have we have been a part of this rebellion and we are still prone to this rebellion by birth and we we take part in it We rebel against God, we are not doing the things that we should, we're not doing the right things for the right reasons, but Jesus comes and fully reveals how we are supposed to live. The way we're supposed to live is an other-centered life, and it looks like what Jesus did. And you're like, well, I don't know how to heal blind people. Well, that's okay. You don't don't really have to do that, but you do need to live a life that is other-centered. It needs to be for the good of others. for the good of others, for the good of those around you, for the betterment of your community. It looks like living a life for others and not for yourself because we live for the glory of God and not for the glory of man. And that's what Jesus did. He was showing us it's not about gaining status. It's not about being successful. It's about the glory which comes only from God. So Jesus starts things over. Jesus is the glory reboot. And in him we have a brand new start. It says, by one man's sin, sin entered the world. But by one man's righteous, righteousness, many are made righteous. Jesus' righteousness this is not for us all. He died so that we could live. In him, we, in baptism, we have this representation of dying with Christ and being raised with Christ into new life. Then the old ways are passing away. Behold, the new has come. All things are become new, right? We, we live in Christ. That is, this is a physical representation of a spiritual reality taking place in our hearts that we live a new life, rebooted in Christ, right? So this is the life we were created for. Romans 8, verse 29, goes on to say, that those who he, whom he did foreknow, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. Before you ever existed, before you were a thought in your parents' mind, right, before any of that, God knew you. And he had a specific Purpose for your life. And that's the same purpose that He had for Adam and Eve, and that is for you to be a representative of Him. He's invested you with glory to represent Him here on earth and to rule by His rules, to rule by the way, by the selfless love that Jesus displayed on the cross. And this is what we were, this is the image that we were created for, and whenever we trust in Jesus, we are being formed into this image. And we are what it says at the end of that that section in Romans. It says in verse 30, it says, Those who he did predestinate, those he called. And those that he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, what does it mean to be glorified? This isn't sinless perfection. That is an aspect. But this, is, this doesn't mean, oh, you're glorified, that means that you, you'll never have problems with sin again or anything like that. Though one day that will be a reality, right? But being glorified means being made into the image of Jesus. And that is not a future thing, a future reality that Paul tells us about. That is a present reality if you are in Jesus, is that you are glorified. You have been invested with the glory of God in yourself to display that glory before others. So you were made to bear and declare the glory of God as revealed in Jesus. Now this is weighty, that you are are called to be like Jesus. And the Hebrew word for this is kavod. It's, It's the word glory, but it's also heaviness. And with this reality that in Jesus, you bear the glory of God, which means that everywhere you go in work, In traffic, on the Lloyd or on 69, where there are cones and people who cut all the way to the front of the line and then just butt themselves right in front of you and are just not very nice people, and you you don't have good words for. In all of these situations, you are bearing the glory of God, right? We are invested with the glory of God to live life. We are not invested with the glory of God and given this new image just so that we die and go to heaven, right? Because if so, it would be better for me to just go ahead and pull a trigger and die right now so that then I could just go to heaven. But that's not the purpose of your life. Your purpose is to live out the glory of God and to bring more people into this life, right? To disciple, to, to do what Jesus called the disciples to do whenever he left, to make disciples. But then also to display that. The best witness that we have is by living an others-centered life. The best witness that we have isn't, isn't necessarily by just saying words because just words aren't gonna do it. The best witness that we have is by living out a life that we were created for. Living out a life that, is, that prefers the other, that doesn't prefer ourselves. Now, the, the really tricky part of this is it feels like we are not glorified. It does not feel like we have glory in us because we still struggle with things. Because we, we feel dirty sometimes. We feel like we aren't worthy at times. I think that we can take another lesson from Jesus because in this situation of people seeking him out saying, you, you're, you're the next Moses. Let's, let's make you king. What does he do? He withdraws to a mountain. He withdraws to pray. And now Jesus didn't have to be reminded because he had some sinful nature fighting against him, but guess what? We do. We continue to have a sinful nature. And every single day, we have to be reminded That the old has passed away and the new has come in Jesus. And we have to live this new life in Jesus. And if you are not getting away and taking time to be able to study God's word, to have fellowship with him, to have this communion with God, then you probably think you're better than Jesus. Because Jesus felt like he had to do that. Right? So we need to spend time with God through scripture, through prayer. This is the design for our lives. This is the pattern that we were created for, to glorify him. We have to daily be reminded of this, and we have to daily be reminded that we have been rebooted. We have a new purpose. We have been restarted to that Genesis reality through Christ. This is not of your own doing, but this is, this is a reality that exists because Jesus accomplished it. This isn't something that you can do on your own, but because Jesus has done it for us, you trust in him and that reality can be lived out in you. No amount of wanting to do the right thing because you're a good Boy Scout and you're going to do the right thing for the right reason. No amount of doing that is ever going to work. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit living out in you that you're going to be able to do what you have been created for, to live that life. Let's pray.